We've been teaching for a series on the Achilles heels of our life. If you know the old Greek mythology and Achilles, his mother dipped him in the river Styx and it was supposed to make him invincible and it did except she had to dip him by his Achilles heel, his, the, the tendon there. So that was the only part that was not submerged. Therefore, even though he was mighty in battle, um, the woman named Paris shot him with an arrow. This is Greek mythology. This is not Bible. It killed him. So that's become the figure of speech, the Achilles heel. The one thing that can take you down. When everything else is watertight, the Achilles heel is the one thing that can take you down. Every church has them. And so the Lord just directed us several months ago to begin to teach on them. One service every Sunday, focusing in concentrate on that one Achilles heel. And, and even though they aren't all the sins that we deal with individually as a church, it's the seven that seem to me as the pastor here that defined us or hindered us. So the first one was excuses. This is a very poor region full of laziness, and poor lazy people are full of excuses. And then you had, what we had was pride after that and laziness. And then we had uh, obesity. We had financial stewardship. And so then that brings us to our final one. Number seven is fear and insecurity. And so let me tie this in first with the resurrection. Go to Romans chapter six. We have our PowerPoint. You guys can go ahead and throw it up there. We'll be ready to look at it. All these services, these Sunday mornings, I've taught with a PowerPoint. I don't traditionally or typically do that, but it has helped me stay on point with what we're looking at. I've heard a lot of positive response out of this. To me, as a teacher, I like, to, I like to be more energetic than this, but I've told you that this has felt like a very boring season for me where I'm just reading PowerPoints, but many of you have told me this is cut deeper than anything I've taught, but that's probably in addition to the fact that it's a bit of a judgment where God's judging us. He's calling us higher, and so these, the, this is a, a plow that's furrowing deeper into our soul than anything I've ever said before. And honestly, I've taught on all seven of these over and over again now 14 years. And yet, some of you have even told me, I know you've said it all before, but I'm hearing it for the first time or I'm hearing it with different ears. And I think, great, what is wrong with me? Or maybe what is wrong with you? Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Part of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was to afford us newness of life. Newness of life. We're not to live like the old man. We're not to think like the old man. We, we, we're thankful for the moms and dads that raised us. Some of us had better upbringings than others. But even with the best that they could give given us, we're still to go further than mom and dad because we've been given Jesus Christ and newness of life. Even for our children, being born again and raised in a church, as much as we might do for them, they're to go further than us because they have a walk with Jesus Christ for themselves and they're afforded newness of life. Not mom and dad's life, newness of life. And so in teaching on all these Achilles heels that uh, affect us, what they are are symptomatic that we don't have newness of life where we ought to. It would be totally a shame to be born again and to have the, 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 the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in you and you still look like the world around you. The name of the game is be ye different. Come out from among them. That's the name of the game. It ought to be apparent that Jesus Christ lives in you. Pastor Vaughn would preach over and over again when he was still alive. He'd say, you reckon if I came to live with you and I brought all my stuff and I moved into your apartment, you reckon I would know I was there? Do you reckon people would know I was living with you? He said, how about God? 
If God came to live in you in the new birth and brought all the fullness of his Godhead, don't you reckon you ought to know he's there? And don't you think people ought to know you got somebody living with you? His name is God. And not just with you, God is in you. So the problem is we've got flesh to contend with and we've got a soul to contend with. Flesh will always have to be suppressed, but the soul can be disciplined and harnessed. Part of the Christian walk is not coming through to church and going through the motions. The arrogant man thinks he doesn't need church. The arrogant man says, I studied the Bible once. I know it. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, I, just, I don't even have time to stop and talk about the ignorance of that statement. When God lives in us, he disciples us. He wants to be with us, and he wants to conform us into his image, but we have to submit to that. There ought to be a perpetual changing in our life. People, if you go to the family reunion thing, if you go to the college reunion thing, if you go to the high school reunion thing, they ought to see a difference in you in between those two years, those five years, those ten years. If you're the same as you ever were, where's God in your life? That's the point of this season, overcoming these Achilles hills. We ought to go further than mom and dad. God designed an apple tree to drop an apple and it roll away at least a few inches. And I tease some of you, some of you got to beg God, pick me up as an apple and chuck me far from my tree because I don't want to be anything like where I came from. Ask God, say, Lord, just, if I'm an apple, just throw me as far as you can so I can grow up different. And the name of the game is growing up. Look at uh, Romans 7. Romans 7, 6. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit. So we have newness of life. Now we have newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We are to serve and we are to enjoy newness of life and serve in newness of spirit. When things are new, old things are passing away. When things are new, old things are passing away. It may be that some of us are hoarders. We're receiving new things, but retaining the old as well. I have a rule in my house. When new things come in, old things go away. We bring in a new pair of shoes, one pair of shoes got to go. We bring in a new tool, a new toy, old toys got to go. Bring in a new dress, old dress got to go. Some of us, maybe we're spiritual hoarders. New things are being added to us through discipleship and Christianity and the Word and the Spirit of God, but we're still hanging on to the old things. The problem with that is theologically you'll produce what's called syncretism. Syncretism, you can kind of see the root where we're there to synchronize. When you, when you synchronize things, you try to get them together. Syncretism is a theological concept when you blend two things that cannot fit and you force them to come together and be the same thing. Oil and water trying to mix would be called syncretism. You're trying to synchronize those, but they don't mix. And for you to have new things added to you, but you retain the old way, that becomes syncretism. You see this in a lot of world today when the gospels preach to missionaries preach it to the third world. They'll take Jesus Christ and they'll try to synchronize it with the old religion. They'll take the gospel, they'll synchronize it with juju. They'll take the gospel, they'll synchronize it with witchcraft. In Hispanic countries, they have Santo, as it Santo Santa Maria, uh, you have this cult. And they wear red strings, and it's witchcraft. I see it in Africa everywhere we go. I've seen it in Central America, or excuse me, Mexico. Religious folks do it the same. You and I do it the same. We learn forgiveness, but we retain grudges. We learn how to, how to be a tither, but we won't give generously. You know, we tithe, but we still spend money on tobacco. We dealt with this Wednesday night. Quit dipping, please. Get, get victory over your addictions because it's costing you a can of skull a week right now or a day or however long it takes you to dip, but it's going to cost you gum. It's going to cost you teeth. It's going to cost you. 
And what example are you setting for your family? So, yeah, you're tied, but you're also wasting money on porn. So that's synchronization. You're syncretizing. We are to serve in the newness of spirit. We're to live and walk in the newness of life. Old things are passing away. When you receive new, something new from God, something old's got to be get, gotten rid of. If you're taught forgiveness, grudges have to be tossed. If you're taught healing, you've got to start getting rid of sickness and disease. It's how this works. If you're taught time management, laziness got to go. Amen. Look at John 10, 10, because we're trying to build this foundation about fear and how to get the victory over it. John 10, 10, and then we're going to look at our PowerPoint. You don't have to worry about writing down any of these slides we're going to show because we can send you the PowerPoint. I'd rather you focus on what's being said and then write down what God speaks to you. You don't have to copy in your notebook the PowerPoint. The work's already been accomplished it is finished. We can send you the PowerPoint and you can pay attention. Amen. It's like trying to redeem yourself even though Jesus Christ has redeemed you. John 10.10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So when we're dealing with fear and insecurity, we are dealing with a lack of abundant life. So all this combined together, newness of life, newness of spirit, abundant life, life and life more abundantly, you just, to, to judge yourself, which we're very big on around here, self-judgment, self-examination, because Paul taught it, so did the Lord. When you look at where you're living today for Christ, in your walk with him, your knowledge of the scriptures, your fervency in prayer, your ability to evangelize, do you think that's what Jesus Christ had in mind when he hung on the cross? That caliber of Christianity. Did, is, did he, is he in, the, in his mind thinking, okay, come 2021, there's going to be a believer in Cookville, Tennessee. They're going to go to a church called Engrafted Word Church. And how they're living on Easter Sunday, 2021, that's the fullness of what I'm dying for right now. They will have mastered it. They will, that's what I'm shedding my blood for. That's what I'm being separated from the Father for. That's it. Or might there be more to gain? Might there be more to grow into? Might there be more victory to be had, more faith to be developed, more, more courage, more strength, more, more vigor? Or, you know, you think this is it. It's all you need? There's more. There's more. All right, let's look at this PowerPoint. Overcoming fear. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I'm going to read it to you in context, and I'm going to omit a word and take it slightly out of context, though it will not be unbiblical. I just want you to be mindful of that. Hebrews 2, 14, and 15. We don't know who wrote the epistle to the Hebrew church, but they obviously knew the Old Testament very well. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that is, as much as the children of God are made in human likeness, he, God, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he did this, that verse 15, that he might deliver them who through fear of death, deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So Jesus Christ became of a virgin, came of the seed of Abraham, that he might die for us, that through death he might destroy him that had the power over death, which was Satan, and in dying for us and defeating Satan, he wanted to deliver us from fear. Now here are the specific fears who their entire life were enslaved to the fear of death. Can you imagine? It's a fun juxtaposition there in the, the language. He's saying all their life they were afraid of dying. 
What kind of life do you live when all your life you're afraid? Years ago, when Lydia was smaller, we had one of these little power wheel things, and they would take turns. And, and actually, one of the iCults, one of our missionary friends, their little, one of their daughters is the same age as her. And they were in our backyard. And Lydia was smart enough to realize that once she went out on this thing and, and whoever brought her back brought her back, she had to trade it off. And she didn't like that because she knew she had to get off and then uh, uh, one of the iCults kids would get on it. So when she learned this enough, she stopped even enjoying the whole ride because she had to get off eventually. So on the way out there, she starts crying because she's got to turn around and come back. She couldn't even just enjoy what she got because she was too busy afraid what she was going to lose. And remember that, honey? We said, she's not even, we said, watching her cry. She's not even enjoying it. She's too afraid of having to get off. She's not even enjoyed the first round out, much less the next round in, and she's losing fun. That is our life when we live by fear. All your life, you can't even enjoy life because you're afraid of what may or may not even ever happen. And the Bible calls that bondage. He says there, all their lifetime were subject to bondage. Let's read this in the New Living Translation. Fear is bondage, any kind of fear whether it's low self-esteem, whether it's insecurity, whether it's the fear of the night, the fear of dogs, fear of cats. Again, we balance this by saying there, I, I want to distinguish healthy respect. You can have a healthy respect for motorcycles. You can have a healthy respect for airplanes, for snakes, for black widows, for brown recluse spiders. Spiders don't bug me out, but to know that there's a spider in Tennessee called the brown recluse that, that can necrotize your flesh and they bite you once and you have a hole I have healthy respect. Spiders don't bug me out. But to know that there's one like there in your basement that can do that too, that gives me some healthy respect. Yeah, just healthy respect. So we're not against healthy respect, but we're not going to be afraid of anything. Too many of you choose to use it as an excuse and a get out of obedience to God card. I'm afraid. Grow up. You've got to beat this thing. This is not newness of life. This is not newness of fear. Well, you don't know. It doesn't have, I don't have to. God does, and I'm telling you the same thing. Grow up. Amen. Beat this thing. Well, I was done wrong. Take a number. We've all been. I was in an accident. Every car accident I've been in, we totaled all the cars involved. I've been in lots of accidents. Still drive every day. Well, I was betrayed by a friend. So have we all. I broke a bone once. Most of us have. You've got to get over this thing. Or you end up weird living in a weird house collecting cats, hoarding stuff. And we'll find you when you missed you for six weeks and your body's mummified under a bunch of magazines. <laughs> well, I hadn't seen him at church in six weeks. Why don't you go check on him? That was pretty typical. To not see him at church for six weeks. Mummified and your cat's licking your weird toes. <laughs> Hebrews 2.14 in the New Living Translation. Because God's children are human beings... Made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who had lived their lives as slaves to the fear of death. Let's just take death out of the equation, because it's not a stretch. Who all their lives lived as slaves to fear. That's what we're dealing with. You and I don't fear death like the Old Testament believers did. They had a concept of the grave. The Hebrew word is, is um, Sheol. The Greek word is Hades. And it means the place of the departed. It's, I don't know why it's controversial if folks would study their Bible. I, we got folks that will watch us and cut our stuff up and put it on YouTube and try to debunk me. 
Jesus Christ said, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights and fulfill Jonah. What, to you, what does that mean to you, that Jesus will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights? Is that where heaven is? Did not the major prophet say hell from beneath will arise to swallow you? So we don't have time to get into it, but the doctrine of hell tells us that hell before the resurrection had two compartments, one paradise, one torment. Both were called the grave. Everybody before Christ went to hell. Paradise or torments, Abraham's bosom or torments. Luke's gospel tells us about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and a great gulf between the two. Abraham's bosom separated from torments and they couldn't travel over. One was in torments, the other was being nourished in Abraham's bosom. So when Jesus Christ said, I'm going to the heart of the earth three days and three nights, when Psalm 16 says, You did not leave my soul in hell, and Acts 2 says, You didn't leave his soul in hell, guess where Jesus went when he died? To hell. How else would he leave captivity captive and lead a captive train? How else would he preach to the saints in prison? And these are doctrines. These are verses. These are New Testament scriptures. I don't believe that. Well, I'm sorry. Stick with your religion. It's in the Bible. Even the Catholics believe this. The, the Nicene Creed says this. The Apostles' Creed says this. This is old doctrine. Just because your denomination was invented 120 years ago doesn't mean you got the corner market on nothing. Invented by running from revival. All their life, they lived as slaves to the fear of death. We don't fear death like the Old Testament did because they knew they were going to the grave, and that was a real thing to them. Our, our modern intellectualism says, oh, you know, maybe something happens, maybe it doesn't happen. This was a real fear to them. We don't even, it's hard for us to even grasp that concept. You and I have been born again. We have no concept but heaven when we die. But there's a bondage that hangs over people, always afraid to die, always afraid to die. I, uh... <laughs> I had a friend I worked with. He was older than me. His name was Kip. And I worked with him in college, and I found a witness to him. He was born again. And he, he had these pre premonitious dreams, and he, he was terrified of ever getting in a black car because in this black car, he and his wife, I think it was a black El Camino, she killed him. She drove in this dream. She drove him, or they died in this car accident, fiery car accident. So he lived in constant fear of black cars. I said, Kip, it's just, he's like in his 30s. I'm in my teens, 20, 21. I said, Kip, it's just a dream, man. It's real. It's real, man. I said, it's just a dream. I'm not getting in any black cars, especially not a black El Camino. It was so real. My wife and I both perished. So honestly, so this is like 95, 96. I ran into him again 10 years ago at Lowe's. I said, Kip, he remembered me, Chris. I said, we got the chat and I said, hey, are you still afraid of black cars? He said, no, I divorced my wife. I'm free now. <laughs> I, that, that's, I don't think that was the interpretation of the dream. I don't think even if God was giving you a dream, the solution is you're no longer with the wife. Therefore, the dream can't come to pass. This is a, a guy just lived by fear. Superstition would not get in black cars because he had a fiery crash in a dream in a black car. Therefore, our, all black cars are the fulfillment of this dream. That's fear. Why would you live that way? His solution was, well, I'm sure there's something else involved. I'm just not like, honey, you're, you're cramping my style. I want to drive black cars, and I can't with you, so. <laughs> fear of death. Fear defined. The Greek word is phobos. There's actually a moon of Saturn, I think, called phobos. All the planets are named after Greek gods and stuff. This, in the Greek, it means fear, dread, terror, alarm, fright. How about for the modern believer? Anxiety. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing. 
Now, these things are a lot like dust. You can't keep them from settling on you, but you can keep them from collecting. Just like they say, you can't keep a bird from flying over you, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. All this stuff's going to try to hit all of us. Fear, dread, terror, alarm, fright, anxiety. A couple weeks ago, we went with my family to Dollywood. You know, everybody's just playing the COVID game. We're, we're wearing masks outside. I get it inside, but outside, like, we're all outside. So, But, you know, we're going to ride the roller coaster. So my wife and I get on this eagle roller coaster. We're all excited. And then as we're getting to the top of it, we're both like, what are we doing? Why, why are we doing this? And I got, I got scared. I mean, I used to be a big roller coaster guy, but I thought, I don't, I remember last time I did this, I said, I don't need to do this again. I'm getting too old, my vertigo. I, and, we, and this thing just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And then, and then that reminds me that all the language says, yeah, the biggest coaster in Tennessee. Why? And my wife's over there. We're like, why are we doing this? And it's not like the Amtrak train where you can pull the emergency stop and say, I'd like to walk down the trail of shame to the bottom. And then I had to tell myself, it will all be over, the worst part, in about five seconds. And I just hope I don't puke all over everything. Momentary dread. It passed. I prevented it from building a nest in my hair. I don't know if I would ever do it again, because that moment, like, what, really, you're like, why am I doing this? I did this to myself, self-inflicted. Terror, alarm, fright, anxiety. Pastor Okwokwo years ago, we had a young man here named Kenny. He was real jittery. I could sneak up behind him. He did a lot of work around the church, and I would scare him. Mostly when he was vacuuming, he'd vacuum the church, and I'd come up behind him, and I'd go, Grr! and he would come out of his skin. And I could do it 20 seconds apart, and it would still get the same reaction. So I thought that was so much fun. This has been 10 and 12 years ago. I started setting cameras up to record myself doing it to him. We made a bunch of videos of these, put these on young YouTube, and we had a lot of views on these just called Scaring Kenny, part one through like 38. <laughs> they were all just about 10 seconds long. And so I did it one time. Pastor Okwoko was with us, and I did it one time around Pastor Okwoko, and my father rebuked me. He said, why would you put fear in that young man? And I said, because it's funny. Fear is funny. Why would you put fear in this? And Kenny was right there too. Kenny didn't know how to handle his pastor getting rebuked by the father in the faith, especially that short Nigerian full of tremendous intimidative powers. And, and uh, I said, because it's funny. He said, it's not funny. You don't put fear in people. Then he looks at Kenny, and you, young man, why are you so easily scared? And he said this. He said, if you spent one week with me, you'd never be afraid of anything the rest of your life. I mean, he spoke it right here in the hallway. And, and I remember going, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. And Kenny said, yes, sir. After that day, I could never scare Kenny again. It wasn't for lack of trying, because I did try. <laughs> but honestly, that, that word spoken by Pastor Okwokwo it, it broke him of it. I could not spook him, spark him, jitter him. I couldn't do it. But I, it still sticks with me. Even when I mess with my girls, my wife will say, Pastor Okwokwo would be so mad at you right now. <laughs> like, yeah, he would. But that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, like one time we bought this, this, this blue screen uh, Una suit, like you see in the movies. All blue suit. We did it to film the movies for Vacation Bible School. So we do a lot of CGI stuff, or we used to. So I put that thing on in the bedroom, and I said, I'm going to go out there and get the kids, the girls. And Manda said, don't you do it. I said, you know it's going to be funny. And Abigail was maybe three. 
Lydia would have been six. So I come out in this giant just body stalking that's all blue. I can barely see through it. And I come out and we're recording it. I still, we have it on footage. And Abbott goes, going, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. Uh, now Pastor Okwoko would cast the devil out of me right now. He would cast one into me. Then he would yank three out of me. Fright is part of fear. Phobos. Gee, that's not newness of life. So I wear on that because that's just as bad as some of you going to watch horror movies. Horror movies are inspired by demonized people. And you watch it, you'll come home with one. If you want to be freaked out, we can get a demon to manifest in church and we'll just let it growl at you if you really want to be scared. But when you dealt with the demonic, you don't have time to waste with these stupid Hollywood movies. They're all PG-13 now, so your kids can go watch them and get a demon. So don't let this stuff in your home. Some of you, you've told me, you had to get delivered from watching these scary movies. It's the dumbest thing in the world. When, the tra- when, when we used to go to movies, remember when we could go to movies? Remember that? You watch the trailers, and I would just yell out in the theater, just cast it out, it's a devil. Movie over. It's not a serial killer, it's a demon-possessed lunatic. Somebody shoot the guy or cast the devil out. But why would we make a two-hour movie on this? Because folks like to be scared, and then they, then they want to know why their therapy bill is so high. <laughs> a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, whether the threat is real or imagined. So fear is an emotion, and it is aroused by impending. hasn't happened yet, but it could. Could Maybe danger, maybe evil, maybe pain, whether the threat is real or imagined. I have a, a few preacher friends that won't do missions because they they're too afraid of airplanes. Can you imagine being a gospel minister with a great commission calling, but you negate it because of airplanes? That is a fear that is imagined. There's no reality to it. Yes, airplanes crash, and yes, people are killed on them, but the rate is way lower than car accidents. You have a higher, 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 higher probability of being killed in a car accident than you do on an airplane. Plus, if you're led by the Holy Ghost like we claim to be, you can know before you get on that airplane. I don't even get on this airplane. But other folks, relationships, they're afraid of a relationship because they might go bad. Well, if you're in a relationship, something bad's going to happen. That's called a relationship. But we have to focus on this threat, real or imagined. Real or imagined. Could be real, could be imagined. If it's real, then you take precautions and you march anyway. If it's imagined, you tell your head to shut up and march on anyway. The anticipation of real or imagined discomfort. This affects us in our relationships. This affects us in confrontation. This affects us when we've got to have the hard discussion. Folks will avoid these things because it's uncomfortable. Can you imagine a bulk of our culture? It does. They, they make decisions to flee or avoid discomfort. We have a whole culture that's dedicated to making people feel comfortable about everything. Where, what's the end result of that kind of person, life, or family, or lineage? you got to teach your kids. We make the hard decisions. We go the hard route. We don't ever choose the easy route. If your life will always make the harder of the two decisions and choose the harder path, you'll be a much stronger person exponentially than your neighbor. Get up a little earlier, go to bed a little later, work a little harder. Your life will outshine them by the end of the month. The insecurity or nervousness that arises from what other people might be thinking about you. 
the insecurity or nervousness that arises from what other people might be thinking about you. Well, are they thinking about you? I don't know. I just think they might be thinking about me. So I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what they might think about me. Have they thought it yet? I don't know. Have you even met them yet? No. So then why are you afraid? Because it might be. Well, you'll never know until you do it. I don't want to do it. I'm afraid of what? Of what might be. Can you sound how, you see how it already sounds half crazy? Paranoia. Just walk up to people. Let me tell you a secret about humanity. Everybody basically is just like you. Everybody sees everybody around them like just another person, face value of different shapes, sizes, intellect, color, money. We all just think you're you. And if a stranger were to come up to you, you wouldn't think anything of it. If they said, hi, I'm Bob, what's your name? You'd say, well, I'm Chris. Nice to meet you. That's what you would think, and that's what they're going to think if you walk up to them. So just walk up to them and say, hi, I'm Chris. What's your name? Bob. Hey, I feel like we've met. Otherwise, you're going to get in the crazy lane. Insecurity or nervousness that arises from what other people might be thinking about you, but they might not, but you won't ever know. This is not newness of life. This is not newness of spirit. This is not abundant life. Fear, uh, pardon the typo, can be overcome by confronting the source or event. Fear is overcome by confronting. If you're afraid of heights, go safely, safely get in a skyscraper. Maybe start at the top of a two-story house. Then maybe go to the top of a building at Tech. Then maybe go to a higher rise and just lean out over the glass. Do it safely. If you're afraid of snakes or spiders, go to the zoo, tap on the glass, enjoy irritating them. Get somebody to hand you a granddaddy long leg if you're afraid of spiders. Don't put it on your face to begin with. Let it crawl on a sleeve. I do a lot of caving, and you know what's fun? We have these things called camel crickets, and they're just big humpback cave crickets, camel crickets. And it's fun to grab them and throw them on people when you're caving with them, especially new people who are really freaked out about them. They're like, oh, it's right there. Where? Right there. The one I just threw on your neck because they have these, they have like six inch long feelers. And it's, it, even a grown man crawling will squeal like a girl when he's crawling and one jumps in his shirt. He's like, oh, 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 what, what is it? You okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, I just got a camel cricket in my helmet. I'll be good. It just, I wasn't expecting. Oh, get it out, get it out, get it out. That goes back to anxiety and dread. But does it stop us from going caving again? No, no. Wherever your fear is, you got to, Face it, you don't overcome fear by ignoring it. Ignoring it is where cowardice grows. Fear can never be conquered by avoidance. Pinpoint your fear, whatever it is. Everybody's got a different fear. Is it a fear of strangers? Go find somebody that looks a lot like you and just go chat them up. Find common ground with them. I do this witnessing all the time. If they got a Preds hat on, I got commonality. Go Preds, yeah, go Tigers. You, just, you find common ground, and you go talk to a total stranger. Or maybe it's public speaking. Find a way where you can begin to do that. Maybe it's heights. Maybe it's water. Maybe it's crowds. You don't have permission from God to live in fear. It's not abundant life. Years ago, we had a, a young man come by the church and said, does this church speak in tongues? We said, we do. He said, do you lay hands on people to get it? We said, we do. And he said, well, 
I go to a church, they don't believe in it, and they don't do it. And he said, and he said this, this is what's always stuck to me. He said, I see it in the Bible. I see Jesus Christ went to heaven so I could have it, and I want to find a church that will let me have everything God wants me to have. Which was saying that church wasn't going to let him have everything God wanted him to have. God does not want you to dwell in fear. He has already afforded victory, so you've got to decide you want everything God wants you to have. That includes freedom over fear. But you got to tackle it. Fear is a bully and a manipulator. Fear is a bully and a manipulator. There's, a, there's an old, I don't know if it's a Shintoist proverb uh, or if it's just a secular proverb, but it says the anticipation of death is worse than death itself. The anticipation of rejection is worse than the rejection itself. The anticipation of that spider getting on you is worse than the spider actually getting on you. The anticipation of that dog running up and jumping on you is worse than the dog actually running and jumping on you. And that's why fear is such a, a manipulator. You're just so convinced this thing is bigger than it really is, so you back down. And that's why, again, safely, you have to confront these things no matter what it is. Pastor Vaughn was notoriously terrified of snakes. He was so scared of snakes, he would watch the Discovery Channel to push himself, but when the snakes came on, he'd pick his feet up off the floor, put them on the couch. That's how wigged out this man was about snakes. But the last time he was on a mission trip, well, the last time he was in Africa was Zimbabwe, and he, Pastor Titus took him to the reptile farm, and he made himself get up. And it isn't like Knoxville Zoo where you have boa constrictors. They had like black mambas and green mambas. So like, okay, he's going to pick that one to be around, but he would just make himself get closer and closer to it because he did not want to be a grown man bound by fear. An unreasonable fear. That's what makes a phobia a phobia. It's unreasonable. All right. What is the end result of a life that always chooses to obey fear at every crossroad? What's the end value? It's a hypothetical question. If at every place in your life you make a decision based on fear and you always avoid fear, where will you end up at the end of your life? What will your life amount to? It's, just, it's a question meant for you to answer for yourself. Am I always taking the easier job? Am I always avoiding confrontation? Am I always backing away from discomfort? What is it you're afraid of? Because it's controlling you. Wherever you're afraid, you're not advancing in life. And it, it isn't some bully with a gun standing there going, you can't get past me. It's in your head. Your emotions are telling you you can't come here. At the very least, you go do something just to say I did it. It's not that I ever want to be a skydiver, but at least I did it. It's not that I want to bungee jump every day of my life, but at least I did it. It's not that I want to hold a snake or have a pet snake, but I went to the zoo and with me and four or five other little eight-year-olds, we got out there and I held a python. You just got to do something about it. There are two types of people, those who submit to fear and those who pick a fight with it. So guess which I'm going to encourage you to be? The person who picks a fight with your fear, whatever it is. What are you afraid of? Is it a difficult, uncomfortable conversation? What's so difficult about it? It's just two people talking. Insecurity defined, because this is another type of fear. Insecurity is a lack of confidence or assurance. We deal with a lot of insecurity in our nation, in our culture. Social media has expedited and, and grown this. Uh, there's nothing on instant, Instagram or, or social media that's real or legitimate. 
Uh, I even saw a thing the other day in the paper, another supermodel. She, the headline was, she shows off how much she's touched up. So I click on that because I just want to see. And she has these before and after. And you can't tell that she's been touched up. She's 33 years old. She says, look at how much they're already touching me up. And so because of that, on her Instagram page, she posts faces, her face in the morning. And, and she constantly is posting what she looks like when she hasn't had a team of makeup artists getting her ready for a movie or a photo shoot. And it's very humbling because I can tell you in the morning, that's an ugly woman. Now, everybody, God thinks everybody's pretty on the inside, but that's an ugly woman. Homely. Just like, like almost middle Tennessee homely. But she's a supermodel. Think about that. And so that was like, that's her. So I scroll back up, you know. Wow. And scroll back down like, whoa. Hmm. Wow. And they keep saying supermodel. Like where? I don't see a supermodel. If you live on social media, you will feed your insecurity. You got to be content with such things as you have. Lack of confidence or assurance, self-doubt. We all deal with this. We, let me say this. We all deal with some form of insecurity. We all deal with some form of self-doubt. And even if you've mastered where you're at, God's going to promote you and you're going to enter into a brand new place of self-doubt because you've never been here before. But the wise person begins to build an experience and says, well, you know, I conquered the last three areas. Just a new place. Same formula, just different giants. These are tall with red hair. Those were tall with black hair. These have spears. Those had arrows. We're going to win. Just a new day. But, oh, God, have mercy and help me. It's okay. Insecurity is born when we begin to worry about what strangers might think of our past failures. Insecurity is born when you begin to wonder and worry about what strangers think about stuff they don't even know anything about. That births an insecurity. We don't have time this morning to get into the insecurities that are birthed through poor parenting or through maybe childhood bullying, but this is what it is. Dr. Sumrall would say, your happiness will not be found in another person's head. Why do we care what people think? There are people in our country who buy cars they can't afford to impress somebody at a red light. Why? That's a real thing. And we're in Cookville. We don't think that way. People in Atlanta think that way. People in L.A. think that way. People in the bigger cities think that way. They will buy a car they can't afford to have prestige at a traffic light. But that violates uh, a good just scripture called be content with such things as you have. And Dr. Sumrall would say, your happiness will not be found in another person's head. What you think about me is not my route to happiness. It's not my source of joy. Insecurity is when you're constantly trying to please everybody around you and you can't do it. So you just focus on pleasing Jesus Christ. And those who love Jesus will love you and those who don't love Jesus, you can never appease anyway. Find what's in the mind of Christ and serve that. Don't worry about looks. Don't worry about prestige. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about fashion. And there's nothing wrong with having some prestige about your life. May God promote all of us. There's nothing wrong with, with looking good. There's nothing wrong with having some value into your life. But that's not the source of happiness. This is, a, this is insecurity and a lack of self-assurance. One of the hallmarks of insecurity is bravado. That's a quote from an author. I didn't, didn't uh, put his name up there. I kind of changed the quote a little bit. 
One of the hallmarks, one, not the only, but one of the hallmarks of insecurity is bravado. That is the bigger than life. People who are very insecure are often, it's either, it splits pretty well psychologically. There, People who are insecure are either very withdrawn and sit in the very back of anything and are the quiet as a church mouse or they're bigger than life. It's just one of two ways of coping with it. So you got to judge yourself. Are you full of bravado? You know, just, wow. If so, it may just be a hallmark of how insecure you really are. Secure people can sit at the table. Everybody look at them. Can I help you? We okay here? What do you think? I don't know. We got really nothing. I was actually zoning out there. What, should I be thinking something? But insecure people can't be quiet. Either they don't want to have any attention or they have to have all the attention. So these are just symptoms. Low self-esteem, we ought to esteem ourselves as God does. Worth the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is how we begin to beat low self-esteem. You are worth the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how mama raised you. It doesn't matter if daddy abandoned you. It doesn't matter if you were fired. It doesn't matter if you were divorced, betrayed, adulterized. None of that matters. It hurts. It doesn't matter. The hurt matters, but I'm telling you, you're still worth the price of the blood of the lamb. When God looks at you and me through history, through our human value, he says, I, let, I commanded my son to die for you. And if you'll be reminded, he wasn't real excited about it at the last minute. I don't, we don't know how to process that, but he's looking for a way out. There's all sorts of theological explanations, but in the end, he's like, is there any other way? And, he, and the Lord, God, his father, is still saying, die. I would, I would posit to you, I'm not the first theologian or, or pastor to say so, Jesus didn't die for you. He didn't want to die. He died in obedience to his father. He died because he loved his father, and you just got to be thankful his father loved you. Now, they're one and the same because it's the Trinity, so go sort that out later. But he said, die because these people are worth it to me. That's your value. The world doesn't even know how to value you. As, even as moms and dads, we don't even know how to value our kids, and your parents certainly didn't know how to value you. So we have to esteem ourselves as God does. We're worth the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And anytime you get down in a funk, you just remind yourself of that. I am worth the blood. If I wasn't, he would have never bought me. This is how economics works. You agree to a price and you say, I want a hundred bucks. And I say, it's not worth a hundred bucks to me. Well, what's it worth to you? 75 bucks. All right, I'll sell it to you for 75 bucks. Fine. We have negotiated deal. When God looks at you, he says, you are worth the price of my son to me. Mom and dad never treated you that good. I don't treat my kids that good. So that's a fact you have to let settle in. We can sit here and hover on this all day long, but you've got to get this in your heart. It's unfortunate that sometimes the abuse of mom and dad, the abuse of a sibling, the abuse of a spouse may ring more true in our ears than this, but this, this is premier eternal truth. It is possible to think more highly of yourself than you ought. That's Romans 12. Let's, let's look at a few verses here. I have some more scriptures to come. We're talking about overcoming fear and insecurity. If you don't begin to, to master these things now, every calling of God that lies in your future will be short-circuited. 
Because every calling of God is going to call you up out of your comfort zone. And if you're afraid and insecure right now without the calling of God, whatever it may be, pulling you forward, you'll never answer that calling because every calling is going to bring you to new doors, new gateways, new enemies, new problems, new situations, new people. And the best way to, to uh, shortchange the calling of God is just say, Lord, leave me alone. I just want to stay the same. I got as much of you as I want. Got my middle class American dream going. Please don't disrupt that. But I don't think that sounds very biblical. Romans 12, what did I say? 3, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. We don't think more highly of ourselves, but we think soberly. We think according to the measure of the gift of faith. So one end of the spectrum is you're cocky. You think too much of yourself, but the other end of the spectrum is you think too lowly of yourself. So low self-esteem can arise when we aim for the world's standards. Because you're never going to be as handsome as that guy on the movies. You're never going to sing as good as that person who's been dubbed and remixed by a bunch of technical engineers. Let me just tell you, want to be singers, and I'm not against you wanting to be a singer. Um, the recording time, I just heard this from a friend of mine who, from a friend in the industry. To cut a good album like a Beyonce album or even a good country album, it's about a million dollars in studio, studio time alone. That's how much engineering work and studio time it takes, and it's months. So please don't think they're that good of a singer. You try to compare yourself to them, you're going to have low self-esteem. I'm just not that good. They're not that good. They've been auto-dubbed. Auto-tuned. I mean, it's all been, it's, it's polished. That's why they lip-sync at their concerts. Amen. When you try to keep up with the world standard, you will have self-esteem issues because it's not realistic. They're not even happy. Amen. Low self-esteem can develop when we fail to see ourselves as God does. So then we got to ask ourselves, okay, how does God see us? That's why we study the Scripture. Self-esteem is what you believe about yourself. Faith is of the heart, and faith comes by hearing. So we must change what we are hearing if we want to change what we are believing. So self-esteem is what you believe about yourself. These are the rules of faith towards God or faith towards his many doctrines. Self-esteem is what we think and believe about ourselves, but that comes by hearing. So if you think you're a fat, lazy, useless scoundrel, probably because somebody told you that enough times, you began to believe it. The only way to change it is to change what you're hearing and flush that thing out. Remember, old things should be passing away as new things come. I can tell you all day long you're worth the blood of Jesus, but if you don't want to believe it, I can't make you believe it. I can put it in front of you and put it in front of you and put it in front of you, but if you don't want it, it's like singing songs to a heavy heart. There are people in my years of pastoring I've tried to blow encouragement into, but they don't want it. I blow in one side, they got a leak bigger than what I can blow. You've got to decide, do you want to be encouraged? Do you want self-esteem? Do you want courage? Do you want faith? Do you want to overcome fe uh, your fear and master your insecurities? Or have you gotten to a place where you kind of like having them in your pocket where you can use them when the time comes? I have found if I need to encourage somebody, if they want encouragement, it takes just that. Those that want encouragement, 
those that, you know, they look to me as a pastor or a father in the faith or a leader, all I can, if they want encouragement, I can look at them and say, hey, you're doing great and I'm proud of you. That's all it takes. But you can't do that to everybody because it's not enough. For some people, you almost have to have like a, um, like a landfill worth of encouragement. Just as I'm thinking of this massive pile and these huge dozers and you just keep pushing all this encouragement into people and it's like it just falls out on the other side of the cosmos because they just can't be encouraged. They've been beat down so long. They have refused to seal the holes in their bag. No amount of, I believe in you, I love you, I'm proud of you, you can do this. It doesn't matter. They'll believe it for about half a day and then they'll just give up on it and they'll be back to however they were trained to be. Self-esteem is what we believe about ourselves. Do you believe about you what God says about you? The only way to get that is by studying your Bible. We have a lot of lists around here about who you are in Christ. I think we have a little mini book back there called In Him. And when those truths become more real to you than how you were raised or how your third ex-spouse treated you or what your deal is, then you'll begin to change. We've all been abused somehow verbally. We've all been uh, mistreated. We've all been betrayed. We all have opportunity to have a deflated self-esteem. Your job is to figure out where you got holes, plug them, and then build yourself back up in the Word of God. Because His Word is more true than mom. His Word is more true than dad. His Word is more true than the bully or the assault or whatever your past has brought you to. His Word is more true. You've got to change what you're hearing if you want to change what you're believing, even about yourself. This is why I don't promote people to stay in abusive relationships. I have zero problem with you leaving a spouse that abuses you, even verbally. Now, divorce is another matter. I would tell you if they're physically abusing you, divorce them and press charges. Amen. Amen. Any guy that'll beat up on a woman... He needs a woodshed whipping, and he needs to go to jail. You don't punch your spouse unless you're goofing off. Let me take a little harder stance. It's poor white trash to beat up on your spouse. And that applies to black people too, but white trash is, that's a pretty low term. You don't beat up on your spouse. And it's not just guys. Women do it too. They'll chuck a frying pan and they're, don't be that way. Don't, come on. You go to jail for that, and you deserve to. That's domestic violence. What kind of standard are you setting? Yeah, you, aren't you spiritual? You chucked a frying pan. Grow up. Find the source, whether it's a person, a phrase, a thought you just keep thinking about yourself, of the low self-esteem. Find the source of it and counter it with what the Bible says about you. We might even say, cut the source out. Cut the source out. Eliminate it. Get away from that person. I don't care if it's mama. I don't care if it's your best friend from high school. Get away from the source that is drilling holes in your confidence and courage. Life is hard enough as it is. You don't need somebody like just poking holes in you, constantly bleeding you of courage and faith. And No. Very few people can take a, a constant beat down, a constant tongue lashing. It takes a very strong person. And I honestly, these politicians, as much as I disrespect them, they take a, a tongue lashing, and I know it's got to wear on their soul. They get it from every side, from the media and from preachers like me. I just deal with them about their ethics and their righteousness. But they're taking a thousand opinions. I wouldn't want to be president for all the money forever to come in the world. 
And some of you, you're going to have to figure out where the holes in your soul are because we breathe in you the word of God four services a week and it doesn't ever seem to be enough to float you. You've got to plug these holes of self-esteem and self-assurance issues. Renovate your mind to God's design. You're there in Romans 12. Look at verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. That is the Greek word schematizo, where we get the word schematic. Don't let the world be your schematic. Don't be, let the world be your blueprints. Quit modeling your life off of Instagram, TikTok, or Pinterest. Quit letting the world be your sukumatizo, your schematic. Quit building your world off of this stuff. It's an echo chamber of perversion. You're just like everybody else on Instagram. Come on, be you. Be individual. You're not individual. You're like every other ding-dong on Instagram. Be different. God made you individual. Be anointed. Quit focusing your life on trying to keep up with them. Why don't they want to keep up with you? And be transformed. That is the Greek word metamorphosis. By the renovating. The Greek, King James says renewing, but the Greek is actually renovate. And that's, that calls back and implies a schematic, a sukumatizo. When you renovate something, you don't gut it and tear it down to the foundation. You take it room by room. So if the world's not to be our schematic, God is. And what do we do with the schematic? If you don't know what a schematic is, this is another word for blueprints or plans. What do we do with God's schematic of the word? We renovate our mind. We start to build that part how God wants it built. We look at the room called family. We remodel the room of our mind so it looks like what God says about family. We look about at the room about future and destiny. We gut it and remodel that room so it's what God says about our future and our destiny. We, think, we look at the room that is history and records. We go to our records room and we look at our history and we gut it and remodel it so we see what God says about our history and our past. And you do it room by room. And just by the time you get all the house remodeled, it's time for an upgrade. It's time for a refreshing because golden harvest green from the 70s don't jive in 2021. And neither does shiplap anymore, apparently. I'm sorry for you guys that went shiplap. I just saw a thing where shiplap is out of style now. Just want you to know. That's all right. We're in Cookville. It will be good here for another 25 years. Along with your wood paneling. I'm not, I don't care what you do with shiplap. I'm just telling you, that's how things change. Just when you get things how you like it, and God, and you're like, yes, God will say, okay, now it's time to bring that room up, and I want the carpet changed out of that. It's well worn, and now we need to upgrade that. It just never stops. Amen. Keep your shiplap if you want. I don't care. Don't get offended because I poked at your shiplap, but I just, actually, I, they just built this massive house in my neighborhood. It's the biggest house in the neighborhood. So I was over there and I had just read the article that shiplap is now passe. And I told the builder, I don't like him. So I was kind of just messing with him. I said, I just heard shiplap's out. And he's like, that doesn't matter because he's building this house. <laughs> like, it's not what you want to hear when you're building a house to sell it. I just, I just saw on HGTV like shiplap's gone. I don't even know what it is, to be honest. I'm just using a fancy word that looks like I'm on Pinterest too much. Renovate your mind. That's the point. How do we get there? Overcoming low, low self-esteem. What does God say about you? 
Now, we, we could do this for two hours straight. Just go down verses of what God says about you. The problem is we often don't stay there long enough. We get back into the world and we listen to mama or grandmama or your mama's mama or your aunt and uncle or your weird friend or your sister from the fraternity or sorority you wish you had never been in. He's too busy listening to them to let this do any good for you. But let me just take a few bullet points to show you what God says about you. You are accepted in the beloved. So that solves any rejection issue. That verse alone fixes any rejection issue. Any daddy rejected me, mommy rejected me, I got fired from a job, I didn't get the job. Um, I got, my girlfriend broke up with me, my, my ex, my spouse cheated on me and I just feel rejected. It doesn't matter, those are all humans. Half of them won't even make heaven. You are accepted in the beloved. That solves any insecurity issue right there because God's got to be more real to you than anything. And if God accepts you, what does it matter who rejects you? If you're grounded in Christ and you knew that you were probably the more spiritual in your relationship or the more mature, you feel sorry for them because now you don't get to wash them with the water of the word and you don't get to be a light to them. It doesn't hurt you. You're too busy accepted in God. If you'd spend time with God every day, you'd know he accepts you and you'd come out of that prayer closet feeling like a million bucks, ready to be hit by a pagan, ready to be cussed out by a coworker or a client or a customer. You are complete in him. This is one of my other favorite ones. If I'm complete in him, I don't have to worry about any form of rejection because you rejecting me doesn't tear me apart. I was already complete. I was complete in Christ before you received me, and I'll be complete in Christ after you reject me. So if I'm complete in Christ, it doesn't have anything to do with any person in the natural. It has everything to do with my relationship with him. And I'm one with him. He's one with me. I've been born again, born of the same spirit, baptized in the same body, what is it that you reject me? In the grand scheme of things, it's not much. His thoughts for you are precious and they are countless. That's another good psalm. His thoughts for you are precious and they are countless. He, David said, I can't even sum them. I can't even count them up. Your thoughts for me, they are precious. How great is the sum of them? Those are good thoughts. He's not got this giant electrified fly swatter waiting for you to think a wrong thought. Got him. Oh, it's not like he's hovering over you like, oh, I got some telephone poles for this one. Going to knock him down, ruin his day. That's not our God. That's, that's the God of another denomination. The one that's 120 years old. Founded themselves by running from God. That's their doctrine. That's not our doctrine. Maybe 150. I'll give him 30 years. Didn't, didn't make a difference anyway. That's an encouraging thought when you wonder how people think about you. What does it matter what they think of me? My Bible tells me God's thoughts for me are precious and they are countless. Zechariah 2.8 says, you are the apple of his eye. That's where we get the expression. And he says, and those that come against you come against the apple of my eye. How, how do you think God... How, as a parent, how do you feel about that bully coming against your kid? I don't even like the bullies on our church playground. I'm like, I'm going I'm to run playground security next time. I'm going to find that little punk. That's the elder's kid. Don't matter to me. I'm going to deal with that kid. I'm going to drag that kid up that slide backwards. <laughs> and his daddy, too. That's what God told Zechariah. Those that come against you come against the apple of my eye. 
This is an important thing to realize. It doesn't matter how your mom and dad felt about you, how they've treated you, have they disowned you, have they betrayed you, cast you off. Maybe they're dead. Maybe they never told you I loved you. Maybe they've kicked you out. God says, you're mine. You are the apple of my, you're not, here he's not saying you're my property. Here he's not saying you're my slave, my purchased possession. Here he's saying you're the apple of my, you're the thing my eye desires. That's what the expression means. You're the thing that when my eye looks at it, I want it. That's how God thinks about you. It doesn't matter who rejects you when God says, you're the thing my eye wants. That ought to make you, and that, there's about seven or eight uses of the apple of my eye in the, in the scriptures. Years ago, I was in a, another church preaching, and this guest minister was there, and I was a guest too. And uh, as soon as she began to minister in the service, I knew in my heart, this woman needs to lay hands on me. I don't know her. I don't know the church. I'm a guest. This woman needs to lay hands on me. And so at the end of service, she comes over to me and greets me. And I thought, well, cool. Maybe she will get to lay hands on me. She said, what's your name? I said, my name is Chris. She said, ever since I walked in and saw, she's an older lady, probably in her 60s then. I was in my mid to late 20s. She said, ever since I walked in, I saw you. She said, I, I knew I needed to lay hands on you, come pray for you. I said, I think the same thing. So she, uh, she laid hands on me and she prayed for me. She said, now I heard God say this about you, son. She said, um, you need to know there's nothing you can ever do in ministry to make God love you more. And that meant a lot because I was trying to work this thing. I, I didn't know how to be loved, and I thought it was works-based. And this woman comes in like truly a prophetess and just, just cleans my cob. And she says, you need to know you can't ever preach good enough to make God love you. You can't ever lay hands on folks enough to make people love you. You can't ever exegete enough for God to love you better. She said... Uh, she said, you need to know he holds you as the apple of his eyes. First time I ever heard that expression from the word. She said, he holds you as the apple of his eye, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. Well, where I was at then, I was in this works-based, I've got to make God love me. I got to, I've got to earn his love. I've got to earn his respect. I've got to earn, I've got to please him. And if I don't ever please him, then he won't be pleased. And if he's not pleased, he won't love me. And that verse, that was 2002. That verse did a lot to help me, that passage. But I remember thinking, this woman is a woman of God. She is reading my mail deeper than anybody's ever read it. And so I, that is an encouraging word I know for many of you because you've been rejected, you've been cast out, you think you're worth nothing because the person you adore more than anything has demonstrated to you you're worth nothing to them. And that is especially hurtful when the person you look up to the most or have esteemed as the highest, has treated you as refuse. And that, that's a pain I honestly, I can't relate to because I've not experienced that too deeply. But you need to know God esteems you as the apple of his eye. You are the thing that when his eye sees, he says, that's what I want. And don't you dare come against what I want. That's like the worst Black Friday fight ever. I want that flat panel and I'm coming for it. Just to kind of relate it to where we're at and loosen you up a little bit. God says, I want that flat panel. Don't you touch it. But this is a lot more serious because this is God Almighty and you're his kid. You're his daughter. You're his son. That verse, you should go study some more on your own and look at all the other, other references to the apple of his eye. You are washed. I love this is Romans. But you are washed, or Ephesians. But you are sanctified. But you are justified. Way wrong. 1 Corinthians 6.11. But he says, you are washed, all one verse. You are sanctified. You are justified. That's what the Bible says about you. Washed, sanctified, justified. 
So when this is the case, what am I afraid of? Natural things, I just go walk and see. I'm afraid of a gun. Get somebody who knows guns, show me how to shoot a gun, so I'm not afraid of them. You're afraid of fire? Go hang out with the firefighters, learn about fire safety. Whatever freaks you out, interstate traffic. We have friends who won't even drive on the interstate in this town. How do you go anywhere? Do you really want to go to California on Highway 70? Because if you won't get on the interstate, I know you won't get on the airplane. Huh? You just drive till you get there. Fear conquered. The solution for all fear is peace. Psalms 27.1, great psalm. There's a song we ought to do. We ought to dig it out. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Man, when God is real to you, nobody intimidates you. They might at first, and they're like, no. No, this is how this works. I go home this afternoon. I talk to God about you. Because I know you're going home and God's not talking to you and you're not talking to him. So I just got God on the pro- in the situation and you're like the low man on the totem pole. I don't care how rich you are, how smart you are, how much power you have. You don't mess with me. I just discovered I'm the apple of his eye. He wants me, not you. Because you're not even born again. When God is your light and salvation, who are you going to be afraid of? My covenant was with him of life and peace. Malachi 2.5. God's covenant for us, life abundantly and peace, peace, peace. Almost done. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. It's a commandment. You don't have permission to, to let, to let, to let, to let. When your heart is troubled, you have allowed it to be so, which means you can rein that thing in and say, shut up. We're not going to be troubled. God will work this out. I don't know how, I don't know when, but he's never forsaken us, and he's not about to start now. He has an impeccable track record, and he's not going to break it for me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. So there is a worldly peace. You don't want it. You find it on Instagram. You find it on social media. You find it with pagan friends. It's a temporary worldly peace. It's not God's peace. You want God's peace. Let not your heart be troubled. There it is again. Let, 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 let. It's your responsibility. Your heart is your stewardship. Neither let your heart be afraid. You don't have permission from God to let your heart be afraid. It's a fight. I'm not saying you're winning it today, but you can. You don't, we don't have permission. I've taught you that over the years. No matter what my fears have been, I've tried to talk about them publicly and then show you how I beat them because it takes discomfort. When you're the preacher and you're all polished and you're wearing a suit and confident, you can't imagine we got fears. We got fears. We're human beings, but we go beat them. We go beat them because quit is not an option and neither is fear. Overcoming is a process, and this is where we're going to be encouraged. David's mighty men began as distressed and embittered of heart. They were scared. That's why they're hanging out in a cave. And when you study, we have a whole curriculum on this called Becoming Mighty Men and Women of Valor. It's on our pod school. We run through the whole process of it. But God worked with those 400 scaredy cats and he made them into something fierce. And at first they were scared. At first they debated with David. At first they argued, do we have to go? David said, well, you're scared. We're scared. David said, let me go ask God. Lord, they're scared. God says, go anyway. All right, God says, go anyway. So get your swords. Let's go. And they got victory. And then they got more victory. And then before long, David could say, get your swords. We're going to battle. They just load up. And then before that, he had to start reining them in because they were so cutthroat and fearless. It's like, whoa, whoa, okay, okay. We'll dial it back. I liked it a little bit better when you guys were scared. But it's a process. It took years. David raised up these 400, then 600. Then before long, he had an army of over 200,000 men of valor, just like these. 
and he ruled over a million. They couldn't see what God had in store for them. Had those men never conquered their fears and low self-esteem, they would have never fulfilled their callings. Whatever your fear and insecurity is today, you got to master it before you get to the next thing. You can't say, well, Lord, I'll conquer it when I get to the next thing. No, no, no. The next thing is being postponed by whatever that fear and insecurity is. I told you I had severe panic attacks when we lived through the Brussels terror attack and we had to be rerouted from Brussels to Paris then from Paris to Dubai and it terrified me. There's something about Middle Eastern culture and religion and Islam having lived through 9-11 and all the other subsequent terror attacks to fly to Dubai in the middle of Emirates and it terrified me. Marla and I had a great time when we were in the Dubai airport for like 20 hours but later that year I flew there again just to do it got on an airplane on purpose this time just to do it, just to say, these are human beings too. God loves these people too, and they're not going to kill me. That's just vain imaginations talking. Or you can say, I ain't never doing that again. That's horrible. Do it till it's smooth. Fear can shortcut the calling of God. How many of God's men were terrified when God revealed to them his assignment? All of them. Moses, Gideon, David. I can't. I'm too small. I can't. I'm too old. I can't. Joshua, God shows up. Joshua, you're old. Well stricken in years. There's still much to do. Let's get after it. Okay. In each situation, God stretched them to the next level. Here's my last point. Are you allowing God to stretch you out of fear? Because it's a stretch. It is a stretch, and it's not comfortable. But then again, living your entire life based on fear is not comfortable either. If Jesus Christ died to give us life and life more abundantly, I don't, I don't think abundant life has fear involved in it. This doesn't mean you'll get to a place where you're never battling fear. Fear will be part of your life till you go home. It'll just be a different fear because it's a new situation. It's a new scenario. It's a new this, it's a new that, it's a new this, it's a new stage of life, new stage of marriage, new stage of parenting, new stage of retirement, new stage of ministry, new stage of office, new stage of career, new stage of business. It's always going to be something, but you have to learn how to master it. Otherwise, you stay in the same place, and God has enough people doing nothing staying in the same place. It cannot be you. This is the power of the resurrection. It isn't just to get you into heaven. You're already seated in the heavenly places. It ought to make a difference now. Life and life more abundantly looks a lot better than we are today. Amen. So that's what we aim for. So here's the deal. This, this concludes our seven Achilles heels. The key is you've got it with this. You've got to figure out where your fear is. How does it manifest? Because it's as different as we are in here, people. And what will you do to confront it, to challenge it, to chase it, to beat it? How are you going to pick a fight with this thing? You can't leave it alone. You know now. So what will you do to beat this thing? Maybe, maybe pray, ask God, maybe ask somebody for some input, but there's got to be something God has in store for you to confront this thing. What are you insecure about? Some people, uh, some people have told me they can't even look at themselves in the mirror. Maybe it's as simple as just standing there. Go to one of those boutiques where they have the wraparound mirrors and just look at yourself from every angle and breathe it in. Because it is what it is, and it's exactly how we see you, and we don't think anything of it. You just go do it. You say, all right. So you're like, this is what they see. Wow, and they still like me? They love me more than I thought. That's a lot of love requirement right there. Look at all that. 
Whatever your issue is, just we accept you. I wish you would accept you like we accept you. Well, you don't know. You don't have to live with me. Well, maybe so, but we still love you. But God does, and he loves you more than we do. Whatever your deal is, just go embrace it, stare it down, breathe it in, and overcome this fear. Because you're not called to live this way. It's oppressive. He died that those who all their lifetime were subject in the bondage of fear could be set free. And that's us. Amen?